Hey, good afternoon and welcome to SWAT Radio. It's Doug McCary of His Light Ministries. I want to thank you for joining us today. It's Friday, the 13th of August, and I'm really excited about our guest today. And uh, our guest is a viral immunologist uh, who has been very passionate about improving life through avenues of research. One is designing and optimizing uh, novel biotherapies for the treatment of cancer. And uh, he also has been very actively involved in uh, researching COVID and the things related to COVID-19, as as well as masks and uh, a lot of the things around that. Uh, The second arm of his research up at the University of Guelph in Ontario focuses on studying host responses to viruses and other inflammatory stimuli. And I think that makes him especially qualified to deal with this issue. And I just want to uh, quote um, Dr. Robert Malone, who was one of the inventors of the mRNA vaccines that is currently out there. And he said this about Dr. Bridal, that he is a man of courage, he is a man of intellect, and he is a man of experience. And this is one of the inventors of the mRNA vaccines. And I'm very excited to have uh, Dr. Byron Bridal with us today on SWAT Radio. Dr. Bridal, welcome to SWAT Radio. Hi, Doug. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Well, Dr. Bridal, first, I want to deal with the elephant in the room. Um, if uh, and, and by that, I mean you, un- unfortunately, you have undergone uh, a lot of attacks recently because you're speaking the truth about things and there have been there's been a lot of misinformation out there and one of the key uh quote fact checker information pieces that is out there is that um authors of a study that you cited uh, a vaccine researcher named William Matchett at the University of Minnesota said that you left out key details of a paper that found small amounts of vaccine uh, generated spike proteins in the bloodstream of 13 care workers and he's that this has been circulated out there to try to discredit you and your and your research could you speak to that just a second about one what you originally said and and why what you said is accurate and this is misinformation about you being spread out there yeah th- thanks for this opportunity doug yeah it's really quite incredible um just so your listeners are aware this all stemmed from a very short radio interview that i did quite some time ago uh and and actually it was a very simple question that i was asked by the reporter and they there was a story had come out where uh there were 12 young males in israel who had all suffered um or been diagnosed with heart inflammation shortly after having received the pfizer vaccine and i was asked uh, by the radio show host if, if I felt there might be a potential link between mRNA vaccines and heart inflammation, especially in young males, and the answer was simply yes. And ever since then, they have been accused of, of providing misinformation. Uh, what I did at that point was I then relayed um, potential mechanisms that could explain why that might be happening. And one of them is, is what you just described. So first of all, what I want to point out is uh, it, it was incredible. I ended up being swamped after that with, uh, well, and ever since with emails. Uh, a lot of them very supportive, um, some not so supportive. I've been under vicious attacks. 
Uh, just to put it in perspective for your readers, I, I, I now, even though I go through hundreds a, a day, it slowly keeps accumulating. I'm now well over 11,000 unread emails. Wow. Um, and, and part of this comes to this fact checker <laughs> question. So, so I just like to start there just for one second, just to give your, your, your uh, viewers. I was, I was completely naive to what the, the, these, this fact, these fact checkers were all about. Um, and, and I took them as being very legitimate, you know, sources of scientific information. Uh, but what I discovered is having been exposed for the first time to being uh, fact-checked, and I've been fact-checked to the wazoo <laughs> for the past uh, a couple of months, um, what they would do is they would email me, uh, and I often wouldn't see the email for several days because, like I said, I was inundated with emails, and I put out an auto-reply to, the, to indicate that. Uh, so I often wouldn't uh, get to these emails till several days after they had been sent, and in most cases, the fact-checkers would uh, emailed me in the morning and gave me till the end of the day to respond. Well, of course, it was too late by the time I had already seen it, you know, three days too late, and they had given me a few hours, which is an unreasonable expectation for a busy professional. So I thank you for giving me the opportunity to be able to address these because I haven't actually had the opportunity to address pretty much any of these fact-checker questions directly head-on. Well, well, and, and, and the other... Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no. I'll, oh, yeah. So what I wanted, what I wanted, what I wanted to point out is on this radio interview, of course, because it was a very short radio interview, um, I could only relay a tiny bit of the science underlying my arguments. So one of the things I just want to point out very quickly is I've written a document. Uh, I, I call I've called it a parent's guide to COVID nineteen vaccines that I, highlights all of the scientific arguments uh, underpinning my messaging. If anybody's interested in seeing that and having all the references, uh, they they can go to, I'm a member of what's called the Canadian COVID Care Alliance. And so if they go on the internet and type that in, all in lowercase letters, CanadianCovidCareAlliance.org, on that website, if they scroll down to the page they come to, uh, down on that page is this guide that I wrote. Uh, just so you know, so that highlights all of the scientific information that you and I will be talking about today. Now, th- that gets us then directly to this issue, uh, this paper about the spike protein. So, yes, I cited the, the fact that this paper had been published showing circulation of spike proteins as proof of principle. Proof of principle that the spike proteins can get into circulation. That's what this paper showed. Now, the argument uh, that's been used against me is that the concentration, uh, so first of all, this was a very small-scale study. There were only 13 healthcare workers who were uh, assessed. And 11 of those 13 healthcare workers, there was evidence of the spike protein circulating in their blood following vaccination. And this is with the, the, uh, an mRNA-based vaccine. And the mRNA-based vaccines, for, uh, just so that your listeners know what we're talking about, are the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. And that's a bad and, thing, right, Dr. Dr. Bridal? It's a bad well, thing if it's circulating in your system, correct? If it circulate, if it, if if the spike protein is binding to receptors on our cells and our circulatory system, yes, okay, uh, th- and that's the key point here. So the argument against me mm-hmm. was uh, so first of all, it was eleven out of thirteen people in this, this very small study where they saw the spike protein circulating, and it was at very low concentrations. And the argument is that I had misinterpreted this study because the concentrations were too low. for the protein to be able to be binding in any substantial quantity to the receptors that line our cardiovascular system, so that line our blood vessels, including the blood vessels in our heart. And uh, and this was the argument. But this is the thing. So there's three things I want to point out about this, and this is where I'm glad to have the opportunity finally to be able to do so. First of all, I would be very, very concerned 
if the concentrations of circulating spike protein were high in all 11 of these 13 individuals. The reason being is that would prove, disprove my concerns outright because we are not seeing severe, you know, potentially life-threatening adverse events occurring at high frequency with these vaccines. So just as an example, in Canada, uh, in the United States, you wisely enough did not use the AstraZeneca vaccine. We did in Canada, despite the fact that uh, many European countries were actively investigating a potential link to potentially fatal blood clots. We went ahead, but that program, and I had written an open letter at that time and expressed similar concerns with that vaccine, including the safety concerns linked to uh, potential blood clots. Mm-hmm. I was laughed off at that time. I wasn't openly attacked at that time, mm-hmm. uh, but, but again, uh, dismissed. But a couple months later, we have shut down our AstraZeneca vaccine program. Guess why? Because it was deemed to be too dangerous, because the frequency at which these blood clots were occurring was deemed to be higher than the risk due to COVID-19. And so this, this is the important thing here. This is why I bring this up. So this is an example. Uh, and, 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 and the frequency that was cited by our health officials was 1 in 55,000. So what I mean by that is we were finding that on average about one person out of every 55,000 who were vaccinated was developing these serious blood clots, which sometimes could be fatal. And, in, and indeed, some Canadians did die with these blood clots. 1 in 55,000. So the reason why I raise that is that's an important number to keep in mind because that is a frequency of a serious side effect from the vaccine that was deemed too dangerous for adults to receive that vaccine. In other words, that risk exceeded the risk of Mm COVID-19. So then when we come back to this study where 13 people were looked at, you can see where I'm coming from. If, and I say if, because there's multiple potential mechanisms of action, if it's free spike protein circulating in the blood that can cause problems such as the heart inflammation, for example, if that were the case, and we're dealing with this at a frequency in the ballpark of 1 in 50,000, looking at 13 people is never going to highlight that particular mechanism. In other words, what I'm saying is, If that were the mechanism, I would expect to only see high concentrations of the spike protein in circulation in, guess what, about 1 in 50 or 55,000 people. Not, uh, we wouldn't find it in 11 people. So that's one thing. The second thing is, in this study, they didn't look. They looked at the, the, the protein circulating in the blood. They did not look to see if there was protein already bound to receptors on the blood vessels. Right? So that, that's important because if there's a protein already bound, that tells a different story. Thirdly, uh, many people have misinterpreted, they, they've sort of interpreted that my primary concern is free spike protein circulating in the blood. And the other thing that I've been criticized about is, therefore, I don't understand the COVID-19 vaccines, even though I'm, I'm developing COVID-19 vaccines myself. And these criticisms that I'm raising, by the way, apply to my own vaccines. I've had to go right back to the drawing board, right back to square one because of my concerns. Mm. But this is the thing. So the, the spike protein is not... It's designed in a way where it's not supposed to be getting into circulation. It's not supposed to be free-floating in our blood. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that it was is why I raised that concern, right, even though it was low concentrations. It's actually designed, the one that's in the messenger RNA vaccines, so the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, is actually designed to stay anchored to the surface of our cells. That actually represents my bigger concern because there is biodistribution data now um, that, that we have available 
showing that the vaccine, unfortunately, is not staying localized in the shoulder muscle like we, we had assumed because we assumed that this new technology was going to behave like traditional vaccine technology. <laughs> but in fact, it appears that up to 50 to 75 percent of the vaccine dose goes elsewhere in the body. And this is where my main concern comes in. It's not the spike protein that might be circulating freely in the blood. It's the fact that if the vaccine is being distributed to other tissues in the body, then what's going to happen, the way this, these vaccines work, Doug, is they, they're little fat bubbles, and they carry tiny pieces of, uh, uh, it's a genetic blueprint, a genetic blueprint for the spike protein from the SARS coronavirus 2, which is the causative agent of COVID-19. And it's designed, our cells are encased by a layer of fat. So what happens is when these little fat bubbles come into contact with a cell, it can fuse with the cell membrane and dump this little blueprint into our cells. Mm -hmm. And then once our cells have this blueprint, our own cells start manufacturing the spike protein. And then the spike protein, like I said, is designed to be anchored to the surface of our cells. So my greater concern, much greater than these low concentrations of circulating spike protein, is the fact that if we have these lipid nanoparticles floating through our circulation, and there's evidence that that is happening, and this seeds tissues throughout our body with this genetic blueprint, that means we're going to have cells throughout our body expressing the spike protein. And the whole purpose of this vaccine is to get our own immune systems to manufacture antibodies. Mm-hmm. So that, and then in theory, those antibodies are supposed to bind to the spike protein of the virus should we ever get infected with it. However, as you can imagine, they're not, they, they can't distinguish between, the, they just recognize the spike protein, these antibodies. So if we have cells in our body that are expressing the spike protein on the surface, once we start manufacturing these antibodies, they're going to bind to the spike proteins on our own cells, right, that have manufactured the spike protein and have it anchored on the surface like a flag, and they're going to kill those cells. And that can cause direct tissue damage, and it can also put some people at risk, potentially, of autoimmune diseases. So you can see there's a lot more behind that, behind this fact-checker question um, and, and, and the very simplistic, I guess, interpretation they felt I was making of it, right? Yeah. I simply didn't have the opportunity in and, 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 and about a five-minute radio program to describe what I just described to you. So well, no, thank you for this no, opportunity. Oh, no, no, that's great. I, I mean, that, that's, a lot, uh, that's, a, that's a lot to take in. And I want to ask you about something you said because you mentioned traditional vaccines. Can you explain to our listeners the difference between like what a traditional vaccine has been in the past and the mRNA specifically? I mean, you, sh- you shared about the mRNA, but uh, go back to the traditional vaccines. What did they do in our body? How did that work? Since you, you do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So a typical, a typical traditional vaccine technology would be, for example, a very, a very rapid way to, to manufacture a vaccine would be you isolate the pathogen itself. So in this case, we're talking about SARS coronavirus 2, right? So we would actually isolate the virus, inactivate the virus. This is important because when you, you, when you administer a vaccine, you don't want to cause disease. You, you want the body, you want to trick the body into thinking that it's infected with the pathogen, right? But the pathogen, you don't want the virus to actually be able to cause any harm in the body. Mm-hmm. So the quickest way is simply to inactivate, the, isolate the virus, inactivate it, uh, and then what usually happens is, is then you take either the whole virus, right, so that, so that our immune system can respond to any and all components of the virus, or you take pieces of the virus. And, and so if you take a piece of the virus or pieces, we call those subunit vaccines. So if anybody ever hears the term subunit vaccine, it just means it's a vaccine made with pieces of the, of the virus. Yeah. 
And then what would typically happen, a virus, so a vaccine at its very essence has to provide two things to our immune system in order to function as a vaccine. Our immune system has to be shown a target, right? It needs to know what it's supposed to be attacking. Mm-hmm. But our immune system will never attack something just because it's showing a target. And that, this is to prevent autoimmune disease, right? Because our immune system could potentially see proteins on our own cells. Mm-hmm. So our, our immune system never responds just because it sees a potential target. A vaccine has to do, provide a second signal to our immune system. It has to provide a danger signal. So that way our immune system sees a target and then knows that target is dangerous and therefore worth responding to. That's Our immune systems are designed in that way to prevent autoimmune disease. Okay, so that's what the vaccine has to provide. So obviously if you're using the whole virus or pieces of the virus, that's providing the target to the immune system. Now a virus itself can provide danger signals. Our immune system is able to detect conserved components of viruses that can tri- they can provide this danger signal. Mm-hmm. Alternatively, what usually happens is we mix those pieces of the virus, or the virus itself, with what's called an adjuvant. And the adjuvant essentially provides these danger signals as well. Okay, so that's the, the essence of a vaccine. And then what would happen is that would be injected into the shoulder. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the, what's, so these traditional vaccines, in other words, when you inject them, it's a bunch of proteins uh, mixed with an adjuvant. When you inject in the shoulder, they don't go anywhere, typically, other than the draining lymph nodes. So what happens is cell, we have cells of our immune system that are specialized. They respond right away after the injection. They come to the injection site, and they'll pick up the pieces of the virus. And because there's these danger signals that accompany them, these cells will be educated to learn that that target is dangerous. So then they take those pieces from the shoulder, take those to the draining lymph node, because our lymph nodes and our bodies, this is the place where our immune, our immune responses are induced. That's why anytime somebody gets sick, you know, if, for example, if your child goes in and, and, and complains of a throat infection, almost always you'll see the physician feel behind the jawbone. Uh-huh. And what they're feeling for is swelling of the lymph node. Because if your lymph node is swelling, that it shows that you're mounting an immune response. And that's exactly how a vaccine works. So these pieces of the virus will go to the draining lymph node. It would show these cells would show these pieces of the virus to our B and T cells. B cells are the ones that produce the antibodies that we're wanting from these vaccines. And then those cells that produce the uh, antibodies as well as the T cells will proliferate to very high numbers. That's why your lymph node swells. And then they leave the lymph node and go throughout the body looking for the virus so they can get rid of it from the body. That's how traditional vaccines work. But what's different about these ones, right, is these are our... Uh, these messenger RNA-based vaccines are very, very different, <laughs> and, and this is the key. They, they, again, they're coated with uh, what we call lipid nanoparticles. So these, a nano just means very, very tiny, so they're very, very tiny fat bubbles, and they protect. Inside of them, they carry this messenger RNA. A messenger RNA is a little piece of genetic material. So our cells, for example, have DNA, and what typically happens is when our cells manufacture proteins, is the DNA is where they get the copy of the gene. That gets turned into a messenger RNA, a little tiny blueprint for that particular gene that encodes a protein, and then our our cells use that messenger RNA to manufacture the protein. So what what these vaccines do is they bypass that DNA stage, right? They directly provide the messenger RNA, the little blueprint for the spike protein itself. Once that gets into the body, 
it uses the the um, the tools that our cells have to to manufacture the protein. And so this is also an important consideration because. Uh, just so people know, it's not a one-to-one ratio. So it's not necessarily that one messenger RNA molecule will lead to one spike protein. But in fact, it's, it's like a home builder, right? A home builder can use a blueprint to make uh, many, many versions of a house, right? So, so they can use the same blueprint and make uh, m- many of those homes, right? That's what a home builder does. Yeah. Same thing with our cells. This, this serves as a blueprint, but our cells can manufacture multiple copies of mm. the spike protein, from a single blueprint. That's how, it, that's how it's designed to work. And again, so we assumed that this would, would be happening locally in the shoulder, which, which it does for sure. So what it means is, of course, if it's being given to your, into your shoulder muscle, uh, what, the, the cells that it's immediately going to be coming in contact with are muscle cells in the shoulder. So we were thinking that, that all of these little fat bubbles were fusing with muscle cells and causing the muscle cells to display the spike protein. And this is where the immune system would come and pick, pick it up. Even down that alone, you have to think about there's some potential concern because what it means is our, uh, some of our skeletal muscles right, in the shoulder mm-hmm. are, are basically have these flags, the spike protein on the surface. So again, when we mount an immune response, they can potentially become targets. Like I said, in some individuals, that could potentially lead to autoimmune responses against muscle tissue, which is interesting in the context of the heart inflammation, heart muscle, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I'm not saying that we, we don't have proof of this, and, and this is the thing I've been saying all along. We have lots of questions that need to be answered. And, but, this, but this, again, is a potential mechanism. But this is the issue. So there, the, the Pfizer had submitted a document to the Japanese government, and the Japanese government requires additional data over and above what um, the, the health regulatory agencies in North America require. So it would be in your country, the FDA, in my country, Health Canada. And so our, uh, the submissions to our health regulatory agencies didn't include this, what we call biodistribution data. But the Japanese document did. And what it showed is that uh, the vaccine was not remaining at the injection site, but actually there was evidence that it was getting distributed systemically, meaning throughout the body. And just so just as an example uh, in this document is one example. If you look in uh, the document, there's a table there. And, and this is in, in the appendix for this uh, guide that I wrote uh, that, I, that I already referred your audience to. Uh, they can see a copy of this of this um, document, Pfizer document. Uh, so if you look at the shoulder muscle, for example, 48 hours after injecting the vaccine, what you find is um, there's, there's a high concentration, of course, of the vaccine there because that's the injection site. But as one example, when they, they measured the concentration of the vaccine, the shoulder muscle, it turns out that when they looked in the ovaries of this animal model, uh, 7%, 7% of the concentration that was found in the shoulder muscle was, uh, was present in the ovaries, right? So that's not an inconsequential amount of the vaccine and this is the thing so this is not the spike protein so so this is uh, in retrospect now i would love to see a study done like this where they also look at the spike protein but this is important because this is actually the vaccine itself Mm -hmm. so if you have a high concentration of the vaccine itself seeding a tissue such as the ovaries there was also very high concentrations in in other tissues including like our, our tiny little adrenal glands for example so if that's happening then what I just explained to you is happening in those tissues. These little fat bubbles will fuse with cells in the ovaries and the adrenal glands, and they will provide the cells in these tissues with the genetic blueprint, and then that genetic blueprint can be converted into spike protein. And here's the issue. is It's kind of an unknown dose that's going to be manufactured as spike protein because 
for example, a lot of these tissues uh, where, where the vaccine may be seeding, a lot of them have very high what we call metabolic activity, right? So um, these are cells. So, for example, if you think of cells in our, in, that line our, our gut, mm-hmm. they are our, our gut. The cells turn over, for example, about every every several days. So those kind of cells are very metabolically active, right? And highly metabolically active cells are capable of manufacturing more copies of the spike protein than cells that are not metabolically active, right? So this is where there's a dosing issue and a lot of questions that come up. So that's how that vaccine works. Now, a lot of people have said, oh, this all hinges on the Japanese document. (laughs) Well, this is where your listeners, this this is very important as well. No, that's not the case. So many of your listeners may have heard of a molecule called PEG, PEG, polyethylene glycol. The reason why this has become kind of famous in the context of the COVID-19 vaccines is because this was the first severe adverse event. It was completely missed, probably because anybody with allergies or hypersensitivities were excluded from the initial clinical trials. So the very, on the very first day that these vaccines were rolled out, we started seeing cases of anaphylactic shock, which is a very acute, it's like a very rapid allergic response that occurs, and it can be very life-threatening, and it happens within minutes. That's why people are asked to stay around at the vaccination sites for at least 15 minutes. To make, that's to make sure that they don't suffer an anaphylactic reaction. And it's thought that the, that the, uh, the number one culprit for the, this hypersensitivity response is against this polyethylene glycol. So it's interesting. So a lot of people don't realize why polyethylene glycol is actually present in these lipid nanoparticles. I would actually argue uh, that that may have been a mistake Mm. because this was the original formulation. And, of course, to get these vaccines out quickly, I don't think the companies wanted to play around with the vaccine formulation because it would mean going back to square one and it would take much longer to get the vaccines out. Mm But... People don't realize that these vaccines were not originally, or these, this technology was not originally designed to be used as a vaccine. It was designed to be used as a gene therapy delivery system. Yeah, for it was cancer, also designed, right? For cancer, isn't that correct? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Well, well, many, many diseases actually. And interestingly, since you say that, it was used. It was designed to be an efficient delivery mechanism for both gene therapies and drugs, drug wow. delivery, where you want widespread delivery through the body. And you're absolutely right. One of the original intentions that the uh, pharmaceutical companies were excited about is these lipid nanoparticles can readily cross the blood-brain barrier. So this technology was actually originally being uh, designed with quite a lot of excitement with the, the idea of being able to target a lot of severe diseases in the brain, such as brain cancer, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, etc. Hey, Dr. So Dr. Bridal, was, hey, we, we have to break yeah. for the news on the half hour. Uh, If you can hold on, we'll be right back with questions on SWAT Radio. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I push, I pull, go back and forth, finding myself. Pounding on a locked door, I try to make it out alone without your help. But I know I never win this war. I can never be, never be free without Hey, welcome back to SWAT Radio. It's Doug McCary of His Light Ministries, and uh, we are with Dr. Byron Bridal. And Dr. Bridal, I want to um, let you know, we this is a faith-based program. Uh, our listeners, uh, uh, many of them are, are people of faith. Most of them are people of faith. 
And I just want to ask our listeners uh, to pray for Dr. Bridal, pray for his family, uh, pray for his research, pray for what he's doing, pray for protection for him. Uh, He is doing some great work. And if you're like me, that first segment, I'm sitting there taking it all in. I feel like I'm drinking from a fire hydrant because there's so much information there. And unfortunately, we're living in a time where we don't get that kind of information. It's all kind of Dr. Bridal has been like what I call talking head (laughs) censored or it goes through those filters and it's just very general. So I appreciate your specificity as it relates to those issues. I want to get into some questions specifically um, about the virus. One of the things you said on uh, on Laura Ingram's program was that the nature of vaccines uh, uh, of this particular mRNA vaccine, it, it was to provide it provided selective pressure on the virus that is non-lethal and and it drove the new variants and one of the questions that we got several questions in different formats but it asks the same thing it basically is there's a narrative out there that unvaccinated are the cause of the variants um and the a, a similar question is did the delta variant derive from the vaccine how are they formed can you kind of correct the the narrative that unvaccinated people are causing these variants because that's a narrative that's being spread through the media right now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a, that's a very, very important question. Uh, just before I answer that, I just want to wrap up um, really quick. Just before we took the break, I just want to finish off on that polyethylene glycol real fast. Oh, yeah, the uh, PG, PG, yes, sir. That's right. So, so just so people know, it, it was it, it was actually, uh, so this Japanese document that I cited, this this biodistribution study, many are saying that's the only thing that, that this, you know, make a lot of these concerns hinge on. That's not true. Uh, years and years ago, uh, the the reason why this people started looking at using this technology as a vaccine delivery system is because of its failure and its ability to widely distribute drugs and and gene uh, genes to correct gene therapy problems uh, or sorry uh, genes to correct genetic disorders um, and the reason is if you want to have uh, something a, a drug delivered widely or especially use this for gene therapy you don't want the immune system getting rid of these lipid nanoparticles, and that's exactly what the immune system was doing. So if it fails in that context, they said, oh, well, if this grabs the attention of the immune system, it's not going to be good for a gene therapy system, but it might work as, as a vaccine. So that's where that concept came from. But years ago, uh, a breakthrough was found with the polyethylene glycol. So what happens is uh, when they were trying to use it as a gene therapy system, the polyethylene glycol was actually put in there. Remember I told you that as soon as the, the, these uh, lipid nanoparticles are injected in the shoulder, there's a bunch of cells that come and gobble it up. Uh-huh. So they can then show the, the, the spike protein to cells in the draining lymph node. The polyethylene glycol was actually put into the formulation to prevent those cells from picking it up so that there could be wider distribution through the body. Oh, this was okay. a technology, an advance in the technology, a big advance in the technology when trying to use it as a gene therapy system. And so they get better distribution through the body. So it's the equivalent of, think about, you know, this, sort of this classic image of trying to catch a pig versus trying to catch a greased pig, uh, right? Yeah. That's what the polyethylene glycol does. That turns the pig into a greased pig, and it makes it very difficult for these cells to gobble up these particles. 
So it actually, the polyethylene glycol is part of the formulation of lipid nanoparticles for that very purpose. And one would argue, as an immunologist, I would say, had we ditched the, the well, had, had the companies ditched the polyethylene glycol from the formulation, A, it would have taken more time because they would have had to then go back and do uh, new studies with the new formulation. But we would have uh, uh, not, they would not have had the wide distribution through the body. They it probably would work better as a vaccine because the cells that we want to pick up these lipid nanoparticles would be able to do so much more efficiently because they'd no longer be trying to grab onto a greased pig. Mm. And uh, as a bonus, we might have avoided a lot of the uh, anaphylactic reactions. Mm. So I just want to point that out, that again, when, I'm com- when it comes to the science, it's not like one paper deep on every argument that I'm making. Okay. Now, th- this is important getting to your question, uh, and, and, and it actually dovetails nicely, because like I said, the vaccine might have worked better had the polyethylene glycol not been there. And this has proven to be an issue with these vaccines. When we design a vaccine, the goal always, 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 right? The ultimate goal is to design, what we want to try to achieve with the vaccine is what we call sterilizing immunity. What sterilizing immunity means is that the virus simply cannot exist in our body, right? We, we could inhale the virus, but the virus is not going to be able to infect any of our cells because the protection in our body is so good. That's what we're always, always striving for. Now, these vaccines are a long way away from, from providing sterilizing immunity. Mm. And instead, as we've heard, that what they tend to be good at is blunting the disease. Mm-hmm. All right. They're, 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 in fact, they're quite poor at preventing infection with the SARS coronavirus, too. But they're good at reducing the severity of disease, it seems, in most cases. Now, so that is, is proof right there that these are not conferring anything close to sterilizing immunity. And what that means is, so sterilizing immunity, that's what would be what I would define as a lethal immunological pressure, right? The virus simply cannot get a foothold in the body at all. If a virus cannot get a foothold in the body, that means it can't replicate. A virus that can't replicate cannot mutate, okay? And so these vaccines are allowing people to become infected. So by definition, these vaccines are applying a non-lethal immunological pressure. And this is the recipe. So anytime you have a biological entity that's capable of rapidly mutating, and you apply a non-lethal pressure, that's a recipe for driving the emergence of new variants. And so where we have seen this, so in the context of SARS coronavirus 2, we don't have definitive proof, it is speculation, but it's founded on solid scientific principles. There's two other areas where we see this all the time. One is with cancers. Cancer cells are incredibly prone to mutation. When a, can- when a patient with cancer receives treatment, for example, chemotherapy, the whole idea is to try and poison the cancer before you poison and kill the patient. Mm-hmm. If, if, if you fail to kill the cancer uh, and you have to back off because it looks like you're causing far too much harm to the patient, then what happens is the cancer regrows and almost inevitably it regrows as what we call a chemotherapy-resistant cancer. Right, It has survived a non-lethal pressure, and what we have done is we have selected for the cancer cells that are very, very good at evading that chemotherapy mm-hmm. and many other chemotherapies at that point. And so these, become, uh, these cancers tend to be much more lethal than the original cancers. Mm-hmm. The other area we see it is antibiotic resistance. Where antibiotic resistance comes from is in the world of bacteria. 
And one of the things that physicians technically are supposed to do, but the vast majority do not, is if somebody suspected of having a bacterial infection, what is actually supposed to happen, say you have a sore throat and it's suspected to be strep throat, that's a type of bacterial infection. Technically, a swab should be taken, that should be sent to a lab. The lab would then test a whole panel of antibiotics. And the reason why they do that is they're going to find the antibiotics that are by far the most lethal against that bacteria. And then they're going to come back with a report to the physician saying, These, this is the short list of antibiotics that you should use with this patient because this is going to kill this bacteria. But what usually happens is, is you know, a physician will pick their favorite, their favorite or most commonly used or the, or, uh, antibiotic or the one they've used most often with success. But the problem is if that is not one of the more lethal ones, again, it applies a sublethal pressure, that can help select for antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Or the uh, physician will often tell you when they give you the antibiotics, I'm, I want you to take this for 10 days. You're going to start feeling much better in four or five days, but do not stop taking the antibiotics because we have to kill every one of those bacteria. Hmm. If, you, if you cut it short as soon as you start feeling better and you only take it for half the time, there's probably a few bacteria there, and now they have been able to escape that pressure, right? Yeah. That drives it. Or if you use an inappropriately low dose. So this is no different with these vaccines. The same principles apply. We're applying vaccines that are targeting just one single protein. So that uh, gives the virus the advantage of only having to change one protein instead of multiple components, right, in order to evade that immunity. And we're applying vaccines that clearly uh, are, are inducing sublethal immunological pressure against these. These coronaviruses are very prone to mutations. And... The vaccine rollout has been done over a very, very prolonged period of time. So these are all of the recipes that contribute to the emergence of new variants. Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to people who are not vaccinated, if you get infected, uh, one or two things are going to happen. You're either going to develop uh, severe disease that progresses towards death if your immune system is unable to clear that, and there is no medical intervention that, that a physician comes in with to, to, to correct for that deficit in the immune response, or your immune system is going to clear this. And for the vast majority of people, they do clear this virus, and they mount an immune response, a, a robust immune response. There's lots of literature showing that the, the naturally induced immune response against these viruses is robust and long-lasting. And the bonus is it's very broadly focused, right? And not, it's not focused on a single protein. Uh, it's very broadly reactive. Um, typically people respond to multiple, if not all, the components of the virus. Mm -hmm. That means uh, people who have that type of immunity are probably actually better protected against emerging variants because uh, chances of a virus being able to change multiple components and still maintain its ability to replicate efficiently, et cetera, is, is very low. Mm -hmm. So this is where this comes in. Now, I, I, so I actually... Uh, Doug, have been, have been talking about this and wrote about this um, starting about a year ago. Uh, so, and, and, and I can't believe how the story has actually been flipped to, to suggest that it's the unvaccinated that are doing this. This is absolutely not the case, because as I just mentioned, you're either going to clear the virus or you're not, right? Um, to to, to and, and suggest that people, the unvaccinated, are getting infected, and allowing the virus to mutate, and, and they're having so much virus that they can then spread it to other people, um, but they're not uh, suffering you know, severe and potentially lethal disease is crazy. The, the, uh, so there's two, two arguments here. So one is when I first started talking about this, first of all, I was told, well, that's pure speculation. Fine, yes it is, but as I just pointed out, it's speculation based on solid scientific evidence from similar biological systems. 
secondly, then one could argue that one says that this is that the variants are coming from the unvaccinated. I mean, you, immediately we could use the same argument if we wanted and say that's pure speculation. Mm-hmm. The other thing, though, is that people, when I first started talking about this message, people started saying, yeah, but you have to remember there were some variants that were coming out before the vaccines were being rolled out, right? There was the, the South African variant and the Brazilian variant, the UK variant, right, that all appeared before, before the vaccines were being rolled out en masse. Mm-hmm. So doesn't, doesn't your argument break down? No, I would argue that that fits perfectly. Why? Because this shows what we were doing to the natural immune response, right? So what, what we call traditional herd immunity, where people who are at low risk, if they're exposed to a, a virus, something like the common cold virus, it's going to spread through the population. They're going to develop naturally acquired immunity, and then that infection is going to die down. It can't spread to the uh, to, to and typically you would then protect the high risk people, right? And so at that point, it can't spread efficiently, and the high risk people are now protected. Um, but what we did, of course, is we put masks on everybody, and we did the physical separation, and we asked people to stay at home. Now, there, I, I will say that despite the physical distancing, the way this virus spreads, with the physical distancing and the masking, we were dreaming if we thought we were stopping the spread of this virus. We weren't. The virus was still spreading. Um, many people probably have naturally acquired immunity, don't even realize it. Uh, but, but the whole thing is what this did, it did is by keeping people apart, having people stay home and, and reducing a lot of our activities, it did slow down and reduce the spread, right? And so what we were doing again was blunting what would naturally happen in a population, this, this naturally acquired herd immunity. So we were blunting that. We were slowing the whole process down. And again, this means that we had populations of people, you know, where the infection was slowly spreading among our population, but these people were surrounded by large pockets of people who were not immune to the virus and therefore could serve as what we call a reservoir for the virus. And this was all being done over a very extended period of time. Again, the same conditions that I just pointed out that promote the emergence of variants. Mm-hmm. So what I just described with the vaccine, I believe we also did during, with our initial reaction to this uh, during this pandemic, and that uh, and that it's been this uh, blunting of the naturally acquired immunity initially, and now this very slow piecemeal rollout of of um, uh, vaccines that are too narrowly focused and that uh, don't come close to conferring sterilizing immunity. That's contributing, and what? therefore this is this is not uh, an issue. Uh, I believe, in my in my professional opinion, that can be where the responsibility can be pinned on the unvaccinated. Uh, absolutely not. All right, that's that's great. Well, listen, we've got ten about ten minutes left. What I want to do is do like a lightning round with like uh, okay. I've got a, I've got a bunch of questions and just uh, uh, what I would say elevator speech answers if you can. I mean, hopefully, uh, I mean most of these I think you can probably do that, but these are questions that people really want to know. Uh, one, okay. are vaccinated people at risk from unvaccinated people? Uh, no, that's great. Again, the per- so a vaccine isn't doing its job very well, is it, if it doesn't protect the individual sufficiently? <laughs> that's, uh, this this, this that, is a crazy thing. That, that's why we always take, that's why we've always taken vaccin- vaccines in the past, and that's why they've always been voluntary. If you're concerned about your own health, <laughs> go, and get the, go and get vaccinated. Uh, no, the, the reality is anybody... This doesn't just apply to SARS coronavirus too. Whether it's uh, the flu, the flu can be very dangerous to many people and causes many deaths and hospitalizations in any given year. So if anybody is ever sick and they're actively sneezing or coughing, it's always the best practice to just stay away from other people, mm-hmm. right? And be mindful and not spread disease to other people. But if you're not actively sneezing and coughing, that's the primary way of spreading these uh, respiratory infections. 
Um, no, no, you're not a high risk to these other individuals. And uh, especially with the public messaging we're getting, which, which fails to admit that there's any substantial level of what we call breakthrough infections, which are infections and people are vaccinated. Mm-hmm. So if people are vaccinated, uh, are going with that public messaging, I see no reason for them to be fearful of the unvaccinated. Okay, uh, great. Uh, second, uh, our next question is, uh, a lot of people have said, I've had COVID, I had it last year, but now i got the Delta variant. Um, and then there's been conflicting reports about only a certain amount of people have actually had it twice. Uh, what is your understanding of contracting COVID SARS-2 or COVID-19 twice? Uh, can you catch the variant if you have natural immunity? I mean, have you had had any research into documented actual uh, verifiable cases of multiple uh, you know infections yeah there are published studies uh, i've cited some of these in that document i mentioned uh which suggests that so this is the thing with biology this is what i always teach my my, my students biology is an imperfect science it's not like uh like mathematics mm-hmm. is uh you know there's there's very perfect rules that are always followed uh biology is very imperfect so when it comes to if somebody asks is it possible to get infected with the same virus twice? Uh, in theory, it is possible. But what I always say as a biologist is it's highly improbable. So, yes, you're going to be able to find examples. There are published examples. They are very few and far between. The vast majority, as the science has progressed, it suggests that by far and away, the majority of people who get infected will not get infected with the same strain. Now, with that said, as these viruses change, it is possible to get infected if the variant is different enough. That's why we have to. That's why we have the flu every year. Mm-hmm. The flu, influenza mutates. Influenza virus mutates much faster and to a greater degree than, than the coronaviruses. So that's why we have a new wave each each year. Our immune system always always a little bit out of date because the viruses change so much that our immune system can't protect uh, efficiently as efficiently against the new variants. So same thing here. Yes, it would be possible for new variants to get infected. But this is the thing. If somebody has naturally acquired immunity, remember, that's very broad-based. They're going to be responding to all kinds of components. They're actually, on average, probably going to be better protected against emerging new variants in the future. And trust me, there will be. This virus will become endemic, just like the influenza virus. We're going to have to learn to live with this. Um, but those who have naturally acquired immunity are going to be responding to all kinds of components, not just the spike protein. So if anything, they may actually be more protected. Yes, they may be, get sick, but it will be just like the influenza virus. If they, were, if they developed immunity against the previous year's strain of the influenza virus, yes, they may get sick with the new strain. But again, it's not going to be a severe illness because they're still going to have plenty of cross-reactive immunity. Okay. So yes, naturally acquired immunity is, is protective, and it's going to confer cross-protective immunity, including against new variants. So even if there's very different new variants that emerge, yes, people might get reinfected with those. Um, but on, uh, for the most part, they should not be experiencing severe disease. Well, the best way to prove natural immunity are, are, are the blood tests you get. Now they're doing like a finger prick blood test where they take your blood and they check it for T-cell antibodies. Is that the best way to prove natural immunity or should we go to labs? <laughs> or how do you, uh, you know, how do you? Well, yeah, yeah. well, it's interesting. So one, one of the concerns I have, so there's uh, a new technology, which is not nobody. In fact, nobody who is using this technology has responded to my queries about this. When it comes to some of these blood tests, it'll be on a, a uh, it'll be blotted on a piece of paper and then dried and then shipped through the mail. 
And these tend to work well in the laboratories where they test. But one of the things that I have not received any response from anybody is when these things go through the mail, have they ever tested that? Because these antibodies that we have are very large proteins, and if you dry it on paper and put it in the mail, I fear they're not taking into account the fact that the mail is not handled all that gently. Yeah. Um, when they test these things in the lab, they simply put that blot of paper down on a shelf and then come back you know, a few days later to see if the tests worked. Um, if we're shearing off these antibodies, we're going to be missing many, many, many people, right, who, are, who actually have immunity, and we're going to be incorrectly assigning them te- negative test results. Mm. So my, my preference would be to have uh, an actual blood sample that's not dried, mm-hmm. uh, tested by a lab. You're absolutely right. Um, now, there's, the, we have to be careful because uh, also these antibody tests, if they're done properly, they should be very comprehensive. They should test for antibody responses against all of the major components of the virus, not just the spike protein. That way we can tell whether somebody has acquired immunity just through the vaccine or through naturally acquired immunity. Because if it's naturally acquired, you're going to have responses to all kinds of other components. Mm. If it's from the vaccine, it's only going to be the spike protein. And this is the interesting thing, is because the virus has been spreading through our population, uh, a study was done actually in Canada using uh, a test that does uh, is very comprehensive and, and can detect antibody responses, it appears, for up to at least a year uh, after infection. And it suggests, when, when that was actually tested in healthy adults, it suggested that uh, up to 90% of those healthy adults had evidence of immunity from one of two sources, either from natural infection from the SARS coronavirus 2 and having recovered from it. And this happens in many people, especially children, without them even realizing it. They don't even get sick. Secondly, uh, what we're finding is there's growing evidence that there is some cross-reactivity. Uh, if people have responded historically to some of the cold-causing coronaviruses, some of those antibodies and T-cells can recognize to a certain degree the uh, proteins on the SARS coronavirus 2. So that was remarkable. Up to 90% of healthy adults right, who didn't realize that they had SARS coronavirus 2 have some evidence of immunity against it. Wow. That's that's great. Well, hey, two quick questions. We got about three minutes left. One, um, uh, just real quickly, I, I saw a video you did on mask, where basically you said um, mask or range anywhere from eighty to five hundred microns, and the coronavirus is uh, one micron, uh, with the largest droplets being sixty-two microns. Can you just confirm that that? You put on five masks, five of the, the the medical like blue mask you see people cloth mask wearing, or not cloth, but the medical mask, 15 layers, yes. and the aerosol still goes through the mask. True or false? Uh, absolutely true. Yeah, so that's the whole thing. So that, that video demonstration that I did was to uh, demonstrate the, the fallacy of the mask being very protective in the context of aerosol-based transmission. Now, this is the thing. So I've been criticized on that for saying, yeah, but what about the large water droplets, you know, that can catch uh, the things when people cough or sneeze? This is why I get back to what I just said to to your audience, Doug. If somebody's coughing and sneezing, they're not supposed to be out in public anyways, right? That's the rule right now with this COVID-19. So it makes no sense. And, uh, And so largely for healthy people, if they were to be transient carriers, say they had just got infected, first of all, it's going to be a very low dose of the virus. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if they were, um, and, and they're not showing any signs of sickness, they're going to have a very low, because say they just, you know, six hours earlier had inhaled a few viral particles, right? Yeah. The virus is just starting to replicate. First of all, it's going to be a very low dose. 
then they, and then if they it does catch, like if they do develop sickness, it's not going to happen. You know, may happen in a couple of days, so it's low dose. So these people are not coughing and sneezing. It's not the large water droplets. The primary mode of transmission is are the aerosols. And even if you forget about the aerosols, like like I said, I had to actually force my breath through those fifteen layers with mm-hmm. those masks. Generally speaking, the air is just going to go right out the the open pockets because these are not fitted masks, which is uh, past her nose and behind her ears. But yes, that was the demonstration. So yes, in the context of aerosols, uh, so again, these masks would help uh, probably fairly substantially if somebody is coughing and they're actively sick and coughing and sneezing. But like I said, out of respect for others, they shouldn't be around others anyways. Mm. So in the context of healthy people, being around other people, these masks are at most of minimal benefit. Oh, that that. Thank you for for clarifying that. One one thirty second question: What kind of impact sure. do you believe a global mass vaccination is going to have on vaccine resistant variants? <laughs> I really wor- I really worry about this. Actually, um, again. Uh, if if somebody has naturally acquired immunity, first of all, they don't need to be vaccinated. Okay, that's that's one thing. Um, and with a shortage of vaccine doses, we should have been testing and looking at that. Um, certainly, when we come to so, so again, my my concern actually is those whose immunity has only been conferred through the vaccine and have no naturally acquired immunity. I really worry about these individuals because the viruses that are going to evade the immune response, they're going, if they're going to be uh, initially evading the response against the spike protein. And this is a great concern to me, right, because that means the people who have only vaccine-induced immunity are going to be at great risk. Uh, they're going to be starting all over again, right? And we're going to start another mass rollout with, uh, with the, 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 the newest version of the spike protein. No, in that case, those who have naturally acquired immunity are going to be the most protected. And I also have to point out, there's some growing concern. I, or at the moment, I don't personally have a great concern, but there's a little bit of emerging evidence from public health information from some of the countries, especially the United Kingdom, that suggests there might in some people even be some evidence of vaccine-enhanced disease with this Delta variant as, the antib- as their antibody titers start to decline. And I want to point out that the FDA and their summary reports that were put out when they first authorized emergency use of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine admitted that they would have to keep their eye open because vaccine enhanced disease could be a possibility as immunity wanes. Hey, Dr. Bridal, we have got to go. Our time is up, but thank you so much. I would love to get you back. We will pray for you and your family. Keep doing your good work. Thank you so much. I appreciate the prayers and thanks for having me. If you missed a SWAT radio broadcast this week and would like to hear any show in its entirety, then go to SWATradio.com. Click on Past Shows, where you can listen to the broadcast. Also, if you're looking for a band of brothers that gather around God's Word to be a part of, then go to SWATradio.com and email one of our hosts, and they can get you plugged in to one of the local SWAT Bible studies. Tune in next time to explore how SWAT Radio is strengthening spiritual